If you're a company of five, 10, 20 people, it's relatively easy to build an employer brand. You look around, you look at the culture, you look at what's going on, you look at why people work there, and you define your brand. As companies get bigger, that process gets harder. And when you're talking about companies of 500, 5,000, 500,000, the only way to really understand what it's like to work in the company is to leverage data. Now, over the next two episodes of The Brand Plan, that's what Marcus and I are going to talk about, data. In this first episode, we'll be focusing on the input data points, the things you use, the things you should be looking for when developing your brand. You're listening to The Brand Plan, the podcast about the intersection of talent, brand, and strategy with your hosts, Marcus Body of 33 and James Ellis of Employer Brand Labs. Hey, Marcus. Hey, James. How's it going? It's good. It's good. It's, uh, it's been a crazy week this week, but uh, I think I'm, I'm seeing the other side of it, which is really good. How about you? How about you? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've just been looking forward to we're finally at the episode where I can kind of ramble on about data for a bit. And, you know, we couldn't do it at first until we got some people to listen to some other things first. But, yeah. you know, and we're I, on to one of my pet topics. And it's not, and full disclosure, it's not just going to be one episode. It's a double. It's a two-header. It's going to be, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the bad news for the listeners is we had a chat about this and we decided we couldn't do data in one episode because there's just too much to get into. And we, we scratched our heads for a bit and we, we think we've got a formula for how we're going to break it up, which is this week we'll talk about input data. What data are you using to make decisions and, and decide what you are going to say and what you're not going to say and where you're going to say it? And then next week we'll look at output data, which is the how do we know any of this is working? How are we going to calculate our ROI how are we going to decide you know when we have made a quality hire which I think is a bigger and more complicated topic but yeah. let's, let's start with the inputs yeah um that yeah it, it's tough because I think employer branding and talent strategy encompasses so much it's trying to encapsulate it's doing an almost impossible job it's trying to tell a story in as as, as concisely and precisely as possible and it can you know I, I imagine it's like uh I want, I'm, I'm probably going to miss it, it it's um it's just the, the, the plague, Camus, he, one of his main characters can't write a novel because he has yeah. to make sure every word is precise. And I think on a lot yeah. of levels, companies are, have a similar kind of challenge thinking about yeah, their employer yeah. brand and all because all the data is coming in and they know if they wait 12 seconds, there's more. So it kind of slows them down. So I hope that we can kind of have this conversation, not just in terms of look at all the data and Marcus can totally nerd out, you know, engineering stuff, um, which is going to happen. But also, yeah. what do you really need, and what's the like? What's the minimum amount of data that's useful, and how do you know when you're good to go? Absolutely. Although, honestly, we could just nerd out on Camus. I love that book. It's the town clerk, and he gets stuck on his opening line. But let's leave that one to one side. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's. We talked about it in an earlier episode. There's a lot of people who've got an enthusiasm to be data driven, but I think that enthusiasm can lead you to make some mistakes if you try and believe that the data says something that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I want to reassure people is there, there is a way of using data well, but some of the using data well is understanding when you're going to reject the data and go, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to not pay too much attention to it. But I think, you know, there are a few different types of data I'd love us to get into over the course of this next episode. And I think one of the topics might be a good place to start is market data. How, how are you going to decide what is going on in the outside world? You've mm -hmm. been set some targets. The business has come to you and said, hey, we want to hire these kinds of people in these sorts of places. How are you going to help yourself and the business understand 
this is what the talent landscape looks like right now. Okay, how fierce is the war for talent in the mm. battles I'm going to be fighting within that war? And, you know, really, how do I start managing expectations or indeed lobbying for more budget and say, look, this thing you want me to do, that's going to be really difficult. Whereas this thing over here, that one looks okay. And where are you going to go for that stuff? Mm-hmm. I think is a good starting point. Um, and there are a bunch of different places you can go for that kind of stuff is, yeah. is the good news. And and this is most necessary, I would suspect, in either big companies where they are effectively <laughs> scraping every college class, they're scraping every kind, they're any, they're they're grabbing at, in, in sheer bulk rates though those people yeah. whatever they're doing, or super super niche markets, right? You if yes. you are you know Chicago not Chicago Colorado School of Mines only graduating a couple dozen people every year, but every one of them is an expert, and there are three four companies who want them all. So that's yeah. a place where knowing the total number of, of potential applicants, the total number of potential talent, the understanding the scope of what you're dealing with is incredibly critical. To assume that there is an, there's always more fish in the sea, so to speak, is not always the smart strategy. No, exactly. And, and for those of you who have kind of global responsibilities, things can start to get a bit messy. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got a hiring target in Berlin, for example, some data on Germany is useful, but I'm going to say you also need to be looking at the data from Poland because actually people move countries in the EU. It's it's easy within the Schengen area. Yeah, it's a whole Brits, it's but... a whole union. It's a whole it's well, a whole yeah. union. <laughs> not not for us anymore, yeah. but uh, but yeah. So actually, the way that the data is divided up is sometimes not how you're going to need to look at it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, likewise, for an awful lot of you, you're recruiting in a specific place in America. Knowing how many people there are in the United States who have this qualification is not that useful. You need yep. to know how many there are in northern Florida in reality, because that's where you're going to be hiring from. So it's going to change for each of you what data you want to be drawing on. But there are, you know, the good news is this is one of the longest standing things governments have ever been interested in. We've got 4,000-year-old records of the Egyptian government asking people what they did for a living. Yeah. Like it, it is one of the first things governments started deciding they should ask about is how are you earning your money. Mm-hmm. So there is governmental data about this. And, yeah, if you're in Egypt, there's 4,000 years' worth of governmental data. on That's some longitudinal data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there is a lot of data on this. If you're recruiting in the UK, there's there's kind of there's a uh, there's a specific government body, uh, the Office of National Statistics, who hold a pile of data about this and are constantly updating that data set. Mm-hmm. And every single country in the world has some level of data on this. Exactly how precise that data is is going to depend on where your government has decided to invest their money. Yeah. But that data tends to be quite well done. If they're bothering to do it at all, they tend to do it in quite a rigorous way. What is always maddening is the way that they decide to classify that data. Yeah. And the way that they decide to group things together will drive you bonkers. As a specific example, the UK government drive me mad because they've decided that psychology is a subset of biology. So you always look at the data and go, why have we got so many qualified biologists in the UK? And you go, oh, no, we haven't. Loads yeah. of them are, in fact, psychologists. It's just that someone at the Higher Education Statistics Agency decided that psychology was a subset of biology for reasons best known to them. Yeah. And, and now that confuses the data set. So you sometimes have to go and dig into those data sets to kind of figure out what we'd like the government to have asked as opposed as opposed to what they did ask yeah and 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 that's gonna be easier for some of you some of you know which sector you're in and it'll be easy to find your sector data some of you do something where it's quite difficult to figure out which sector you're in in the governmental data set Mm -hmm. so you know 
as a specific example, recruitment advertising agencies are not a subset in the government data set. There is yeah. a kind of creative industries one. We're probably in there, we mm -hmm. think, maybe. But even we don't know where our data goes in the government data set. We can make a sensible guess. Yeah. And, and that's going to be... But it's always the first place to start. Go and have a look at that and see what there is. It is very often, because governments don't move quickly, it's very often five years out of date. It's, it's very often old. And... You're pro you very look. The world is changing so fast. Uh, yeah. The the skill you're looking for may not yeah. even have a name, let alone something the government documents against and has a place to collate and cl calculate that relative to larger population size. Exactly. So I bet most governments right now have a pretty good read on how many IT professionals they are. They don't have a very good read on how many AI professionals there are, for example, because for example. it wasn't interesting enough last time they updated the set of survey questions. Eventually, they will start recording that stuff, but they're not there yet, and they're probably not going to get there yet for a while, because an awful lot of people have to agree before the government can change its question. So it's a good place to start. It's, it's always where you're going to get your headline number when you're talking mm -hmm. to senior stakeholders and you go, right, the, you know, the number of people in the labour market has gone down, therefore this is why we're struggling to hire. How relevant it's going to be is, is to some extent, how big an employer are you? If yeah. you're a big employer, that starts to become really useful data. If you're a really little employer, you start going, yeah, that's probably not going to be as useful and I probably need to find something more local. But this is where your local authority may have more, you know, whether it's your state government, whether it's your city government. In, in the UK, we have these, we have the chambers of commerce. I don't know if you have the same setup in America, but, you know, local business associations, mm -hmm. essentially, that will exist as well. And, and they sometimes hold some data on what does the local labour market look like? How many local employers are there in your sector? Roughly how many people are they employing in this region? Yeah, That starts to become very helpful for making that case about, that thing you asked me to do, this is why it's going to be quite difficult or quite easy or why the talent isn't here and we're going to have to go and get it from somewhere else. That that certainly can be very useful. So provided, so all of that. Yeah, so, so provided you can't get it from the government, where do you go next? Because, you know, it's, it could potentially out of date, potentially fuzzy. You know, it, it's designed not for you. It's designed for yeah. a whole completely per, whole different purpose. So where do you go next? Well, there's the where do we go next or where should we go next? Where we do go oh, next that is, is, a great is, question. is Google. We, we all go to Google, right? They, they, there is no secret here. Yeah. And that is what we all do. And we start Googling for the data set we wish existed. And you start Googling for, you know, AI professionals in the southwest of, of the UK or whatever the thing you really wanted to know was. And you try and find what you can find. And there are various people who might have that data. But you're now into the realms of these are now people who have a commercial agenda at, in play, and that's going to mm -hmm. play into that data. So you might find that there are um, kind of data organisations who say that they've got some data on this, and there are you know there are big global polling companies who might say, oh, we've got a piece of data that does that thing that you want, but mm -hmm. now you're going to have to pay to buy it off yeah. them because that's their business is selling that data. You might find that there are. Um, trade associations who have relevant yep. data to you. So if you're an accountancy firm, there are going to be accountancy bodies who hold data on how many accountants they are and who they work for and what kind of stuff they do. So they have some stuff that you might be able to access. There are media providers who might have stuff. So you might have a website that serves your sector yeah. that has some data on, you know, if you're a law firm, there are websites devoted to the law sector that do law news and they have some data on where people are accessing their site from and, and you know, levels of experience. They might know quite a lot about their users if they require a sign up. So they're a potential data source. 
But of course, we're now into the realms of we're talking about data from people who have a commercial agenda. Yeah. And that commercial agenda might start to interfere with what data they are collecting and even more so what data they are prepared to share. Any data that is bad news for them, they're not going to tell you. Even if they've got it, they are going to hold on to that and it's they're going to keep it hidden from you. Yeah. Um, so I think those those are kind of the other big data sources. What about LinkedIn? Other... Could we tag in, could we talk about LinkedIn? That's that's self-reported yeah. data. I mean, I myself have tried to figure out how many employer brand professionals are there in the United States or in the world, and that mm. number fluctuates pretty fast. Um, as you know, both people decide that that's a thing they do, or that's the oh, that's what it's called. Um, but also, yes. it's it's hard to kind of know. I mean, let's LinkedIn is you know it's not well known for having a strong search engine, so even that sometimes is hard right. to kind of kind of uh, rely upon. I think for all sorts of reasons, LinkedIn keep changing what you're able to interrogate from their mm -hmm. data set as well, because they get a bit nervous if you're interrogating it too much about all sorts of things to do with data protection, but also to do with whether this is a sellable product, yeah. product that LinkedIn could be making some money out of. They used to have a fantastic search functionality, for example, where you could look at any education institution in the world, like kind of Harvard, and yeah. it would tell you where everyone who graduated from Harvard worked. They disabled that function because too many people were using it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was too useful. Yeah. And it really annoyed me when that disappeared. But th they have amazing data. And how much you're able to sell it to you. But they will sell it oh, to yeah. you. You can ask for custom reports. If Look, if your boss is, is begging you for this information, you can absolutely yeah. uh, request a custom uh, report from them. Absolutely. Some things you might be able to work out for free by doing searches in LinkedIn, but. Mm -hmm. but yeah, the best stuff, the gold dust, they want to charge you for. And actually, it's not unreasonable for them to charge you for it. It sure. is an incredibly valuable piece of information that they own. Fair enough, all right, they're allowed to monetize it. I'm, I'm annoyed that I can't get it for free anymore. But but what you always have to remember about LinkedIn, and someone pointed this out to me a long time ago, and it's, it's never lost, left my mind, is all the data on LinkedIn is what people say they are yes. on their LinkedIn profile. It's not necessarily true. My, my favorite story about this is there's a guy who I'm connected to on LinkedIn now because I thought it was hilarious, uh, a Dutch guy called Robrecht, who decided to see what happens if I just declare I'm the CEO of Shell. Yeah, I've seen that. Yep. So he changed his job title to CEO of Shell on LinkedIn. And, and he suddenly, the whole way LinkedIn behaved started changing for him. Different people contacted different things. But there was no check that he was CEO no. of Shell. And he wasn't CEO of Shell. He's an IT guy, I think. Uh, but the whole of LinkedIn relies on us all telling the truth. And some people tell more truthful things than others in their LinkedIn profiles. So if you search for a skill set on yeah. LinkedIn, LinkedIn can only tell you who's got that skill set, who says they've got that skill set, not who actually has that skill set. Yeah. And we all know fully that there are some people out there who are over declaring skills. I, I don't know what you and, mean. I don't know what that's yeah. like. I don't, and I certainly don't get those messages from those people who have amazing skill sets they're offering me at a, at a di fabulous discount price. Yeah. And like course, we know there's a bunch of people who aren't declaring skills because they've got fed up of being played by recruiters. So yeah. actually they're under declaring stuff. So it's yeah. not a perfect data set, but it is a very big one. Well, so it's quite a good one. I, I feel like you we know? can put the label of it's not a perfect data set on everything we're about <laughs> to talk about and everything we have talked about. Like that's a blanket kind of uh, asterisk to the whole thing. Yeah. And the one I think loads of people miss until I suggest it to them very often is uh, there's a qualitative data set out there for you, for most of you, which is you've got a preferred supplier list of external recruiters working with you who like want to remain a supplier to you. Ask them, hmm. what's the market like? 
they might know stuff that you don't. They might know qualitatively, right, these kinds of employers are hiring more, those kinds of employers are hiring less. And they might be prepared to give you a kind of off the record or kind of like high level view of how the world looks from their business revenue and their business plan, which actually can be incredibly helpful. This is when you find out, oh, everyone in our sector is hiring at the moment. They're like, yep, the phone's off the hook. Sorry, this is why I couldn't get, couldn't get back to you for two days. It's because yeah. I'm flat out at the moment. How busy your preferred supply list is, is often a very good clue to what's going on in the market. It won't give you a number, but it might well give you that real insight into what's actually happening, particularly in your competitor set, because yeah. they're probably working with them too. It's, it's not the, it, it's not the data. It's the flavor. It's the sense. It's exactly. the it's the sensation around it. But very often, that's the that's the piece of data that is going to convince your senior stakeholder. Is one of our preferred supplier lists said that all of our competitors are paying ten percent more than we are in the market? Right. Okay. Yeah. That is a piece of data that, that actually, even mountains. though it only comes from one person, and it's a quote and it's qualitative that will have more power than anything you get out of a government data set yeah. because it feels, and, and also probably because it's current and live. Yeah. So that's a really useful data source. And I'm constantly surprised how many people are not bringing data out of that because that, that is a bunch of people who will talk to you because yeah. they, they've got a commercial incentive in talking to you. They won't necessarily always entirely tell you the whole truth and, and nothing but the truth because they don't want to offend you. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes it's not a bad thing to give them permission to say, look, tell me the stuff that you think I don't want to hear as well as the stuff that you think I want to hear. Manage that relationship because they hear things that you won't hear. Yeah. That brings up a quote from Rory Sutherland, who I know you know. Uh, amazing book. And But if you haven't read Alchemy, please do. Uh, what I like about – one of the quotes, and he's a quote machine if ever there was one. Oh, yes. Uh, we all aspire. Those of us who are loudmouths aspire to that level of quote tittedness, I guess that's the phrase. What the hell? Um, but he says that all data, especially when you're talking about big data, all data comes from the same place, the past. Yeah. And that yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to keep that in mind that, you know, especially when you're talking about government data, especially when we're talking about longitudinal data, trends don't work that way. Look at the stock market. Just because it was going up doesn't mean it's going to always go up. It's just because everything is in the past and it has to be filtered through the filters of, look, this is how things are working. These are the trends. But this is what we expect to really happen. Absolutely, absolutely. And strong recommend, if you've got any spare time, go onto YouTube, watch Rory Sutherland's speeches. They are always incredibly funny yeah. and very, very insightful as well. But yeah. yeah. I, I say he is he's probably the world's greatest podcast guest. Like he because honestly, as a host, you just go, So Rory, how you doing? And then forty five minutes later you said, So about that. And that's all you gotta do. And that he's just runs. He's amazing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I remember watching him do a speech a while ago where he, he claimed he'd uh, recently returned from Ted Evil, where they all meet up and work out how to uh, how to do bad things and, and corrupt the world. And it's a very funny opening to a kind of speech. But yeah. actually, it, it, it's uh, it's an interesting way of looking at the world. How would I do bad things with all of this knowledge that I have? And sometimes it can be quite a productive way of uh, provoking new, new, new ideas into life. Your career site is a kind of litmus test for your entire talent strategy. It should pique the interest and engage the people you most want to hire. Does your career site connect your company to the people you are trying to attract? Is it tailored to what candidates want to learn and how they want to learn it? Have you even updated it in the last year or two? If it's time to rethink your career site and make it a more strategic element in your recruiting plan, stay tuned.
But anyway, yeah. back to the point of this is the kind of market data most of you are going to have. Some of you might have more than that, but I think that's probably the limit mm -hmm. what most of you are going to end up looking at. And I think, you know, just don't try and oversell it and overuse it. Look at what you have been able to find. And actually, you can go to your stakeholders and say, if you need more data than this, you need to give me some budget to go and create it. Yeah. And then you can go and anything you want to know, eventually you can work work out a way to pay for it to be done. Yes. And, you know, there are polling companies out there. You can pay to go and fill in the gaps in your data set if you really want to. There, are, mm -hmm. there is always a way of doing that. You can get street research done. We've done street re research recently for a client who wanted some data in a particular market in Arizona. We said, well, look, that's not going to be purchasable. We can do it, but we're going to need to commission a street research. Literally mm -hmm. go and ask people some questions. It's fine. We can do that. Yeah. Um, and there are always expensive and cheap ways of doing that. I did some work with a, a, a catering, uh, sorry, a, a food hospitality business in London. And the street research we did is I sent my junior to kind of wander down the backs of all the restaurants along Oxford Street and chat to the people having their cigarette breaks. Yeah. And it wasn't the most scientific thing, but it was cheap and it was quick and it gave yeah. us a quick flavour of how everyone feel, felt about working at these different competing restaurants in one long row. So mm -hmm. we kind of disambiguated for geography and, and all of that. Is that a perfect way of doing that research? No, but it's quite cheap and it's quite quick. We had the answers in two hours flat. Yeah. And it certainly so, beats, I had a client uh, at a previous job where they said, we need to talk to uh, enough people with MDs and JDs. That means they had to be a medical doctor with a law degree. And I'm like, right, right. Uh, mentally doing the math. Quite what a are small there? subset. Yeah. How about <laughs> four, three maybe? He's like, no, no, actually there was a couple of hundred of them. I'm like, oh, a couple of hundred, yeah. sure. And they wanted to know because this was a, in pharmaceutical, they needed someone who understood the both sides of that sort of thing. Yeah. And we could put that together. That was a thing that is doable. So you can get incredibly granular. The price goes up every time you get make it a little more granular and the price goes up the more you try to make it statistically significant. So it, it, everything comes at a cost. Exactly. I, a client many years ago who said, I want to know what what is thought about coming to work in the private sector by the kind of person who is doing, who has a PhD in astrophysics or maths or physics from either Oxford or Cambridge. Oh my and, God. And, yeah, and, and I said, right, okay, the, the, the full answer I, to that is I very, asked very Bob expensive. and he said. <laughs> well, I said the cheap way is I know four. I can message them on Facebook and have you an answer by the end of the day because I did, you know, because I happen to do engineering there. I know four from my age. They're all the same age, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I can get you their answer by the end of the day for free. If you want to know the full answer and a more recent people who've done it more recently, that's going to cost you some money because that's a very – you yeah, know, specific ask that, that will take us some time to locate. But, you know, very often you're not going to get into that realm. It's going to be, what can I grab now? What can I use now? And that's probably going to be enough for most of you. Yep. Your agency, if you're working with one, should be able to help you with the, this, though. They should have a Certainly. team. Like ours is called the Brandon Insight team, but at a different agency, it might be called the planning team. It might be called the research team. But there should be someone who either has some data sets or can help you wrangle the data sets you've found and figure out what they really say. Or they've got somebody on call. Exactly. And, you know, and again, if you're working with an agency, they should be sending you stuff from time to time as well. We do a regular thing called Megatrends that goes out to our clients or to those clients to whom we think it's relevant of yeah. here is a thing that we've been looking at that we think is kind of interesting. So we did a report recently on um, rehiring older workers in the UK because that's become a thing. How do you get people back into the workforce? You spend some time out of it governmentally. That's become quite an issue because we've got a shrinking workforce in the UK. 
and, and that's a problem. So loads of employers have been asking about it. We did a report on it ahead of any clients asking for it and sent it to the ones for whom it's relevant. Yeah. So you have, I mean, that's the thing you got to, and this is going off topic and I want to, as soon as I say this, I'm going to swing us back around, but I think you got to be able to use your agencies properly. And it doesn't mean just asking for work and taking work. It means understanding they have a perspective and a, you know, a wider perspective in a way that you simply don't have. And if they're yeah. not giving it to you, you should be asking for it. It is part of the deal. Definitely. And it's where, you know, way back when you chose an agency, if you're working with an agency, some of you will have chosen an agency that doesn't work with anyone else mm -hmm. in your sector because you thought, oh, that's great. We can be their only client in their sector. And some of you will have chosen an agency that does work with other people in your sector. Yeah. If they work with other people in your sector, they're going to have a lot more information and a better view and a more informed thing. But it does also mean they can't give some of it to you yeah. because it belongs to that other competitor or the other competitor paid for it. So there's a trade-off there that's quite tricky. They, yeah. they will always tell you what they can, but they can't give you anything that the other guys paid for. That wouldn't be right. Yep, totally. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, so there's a lot of ethical boundaries there, So, but you Completely. start by asking. All right, so we've, we've collected market data. We've collected broad yep. market data. We understand, okay, the lay of the land. Where do we go next? What's a useful data? What's a useful data set or a useful question to be asking as we're building our strategy or as we're building our brand? So I think the, the massive one, and the one that we're probably going to spend most of the rest of the podcast talking about is where do you get data on you and how you're seen? <sighs> Correct. And that is the one that, you know, whether you're developing an EVP or whether you're just looking at, you know, next year's graduate recruitment campaign. So whether you're doing it at a very big scale, a very small scale, how do you find out how people feel about you? And the obvious one, which we've talked about before and we're going to talk about again now, and I've no doubt we'll talk about again in the future, is what are you going to do about Glassdoor? Yep. But that, you know, it's not the only one. Some of you might be buying data sets that tell, tell you how people feel about you and your competitors. And they might be focused on particular talent audiences or they might be very broad and generic. Um, there's certainly several that you might be buying in the graduate recruitment and, and internship space yep. where this is how students feel about your company. This is how they see you relative to the others. There, there are some you can buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. But you could also, again, in this space, be commissioning something and going, right, if there isn't anything out there that I want, then I think once we've talked about those a little bit, we might get into the internal data as well. So let's talk about Glassdoor, James. Let's let's get into how do you tangle with Glassdoor data? Dramatic thunder in the background as we talk about I know, Glassdoor. I know. It's so, it's so telling. It's, yeah. <laughs> but how good is the data on Glassdoor and how are you going to look at it? And that's I think that's a different thing. And some of you... The complexity is going to be is that some of the data is just flat wrong. Yeah. The one that, you know, the, 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 the very obvious one is if you work at a business that has a franchise model, a ton of the people who leave glass doors for you don't work for you. They work for one of your franchisees, but they forget that. And so they review you mm -hmm. and they're going to appear on your data. And the, the best one I ever ran across was um, so when I was working with CERN, most of the people at CERN physically don't work for CERN. They, they're at a university. They're at mm. the University of Manchester or the University of Cambridge or the University of Bologna, but they're on site at CERN and they review CERN as an employer. CERN is not and has never been their employer, but they don't think of that. They tell their friends, oh, I work at CERN, yeah. despite the fact they're not an employee. And they have this problem that an awful lot of their reviews are in fact not from employees at all. They're from people who are just physically working at this research institution. That's the power and of the so brand some, right there. <laughs> exactly. So some of you are going to have really complex landscapes that some of the data isn't even really about you. 
but it's going to look that way. So if you're using it as a data source, you have to look at that and go, how sure am I that all the people reviewing this are actually correct that they do work for me? If you're a small employer, that's unlikely to be a problem. If you're a big employer, that can start to be a significant oh, yeah. problem, is that you know some of these people might be contractors who don't actually work for you, but they're still reviewing you because they go to your office every day and they work on a project for you and they forget that technically they're employed by this subcontractor. And you don't know... It, that can be really complicated for big employers is is who is this review actually from yeah i think then yeah. then you have to look in the motivations of why has someone gone to glassdoor and and that's where you get into a lot of the people who've gone to glassdoor have gone to glassdoor because they're angry yeah well they well it's it's the it's the powerful emotions that push you there no one's meh on glassdoor there i love it yeah. i hate it and there's very little in between and you know i know internally companies like to talk about hey go on glassdoor review us and you'll get a couple of men but yeah. mostly you're going to get the most polarizing points of view well they, you know i've always been astonished at how many people there are who will go and leave mediocre interviews of things on the internet you know if you go on amazon and you buy a new plug yeah to put on your to put on your toaster and someone has reviewed the plug and it's like who went to give a three-star review to a plug what on earth made you do that but you know thank it was you all right that, but... it was fine it did the job <laughs> but it didn't come well packaged and i had to call the customer blah, blah, blah. yeah i mean i get that but remember that's the thing is you don't want to concatenate amazon data and glassdoor data because amazon data is a product you bought it it's a transaction it's a different model yes. glassdoor has a different set of legs it has a different kind of connection to us and i know Look, I, look, I've been what I would call poorly treated by companies in the past, and I have been, you know, the evil part of my brain says I could easily live, leave five different Glassdoor reviews, all one star, and really kind of tank that company. Yeah. And as much as Glassdoor wants to say, oh, that's impossible, I know that it's not. And so not it does kind of collect those polarizing emotional views. Exactly, exactly. What is helpful, though, and I think we talked about this before, is the way to handle Glassdoor for me is use use the kind of comparisons between you and similar other employers because yeah. then the flaws are consistent yeah so if you took your five biggest competitors and looked at your data versus their data mm -hmm. the flaws in your data are likely to be similar to the flaws in their data so you can start to look at why are they higher rated than us for that and why are they lower rated than us for that yes. that starts to become quite useful and quite interesting and that is something again when you're showing your senior stakeholders they are more interested they don't know what a score of 4.2 is, but if they can see that the biggest competitor is 4.4, they're mm. interested, yep. right? And, and so that's the way that I find they are useful to a point. I would also add, I, the one, you know, and I'll, I'll happily beat up Glassdoor all day long. One of the value ads I think they put in was they did some very basic pattern recognition to say, these are the yes. three or four most common pros and three or four most pro common cons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's incredibly useful because inside an industry, you will find those pros and cons to be surprisingly similar. So if you're in an industry and you're like, oh, everybody hates us because we have bad work-life balance and our leadership is bad. And I'll say, yeah, look at the other five companies. That's exactly what they say. So is that really the problem you're trying to solve? Do not. It allows you to have that perspective of this is what people people in this space are complaining about completely completely and you know i think it's there's, there's a thing that people do which is a mistake which is to get very very hurt by any yeah. criticism of your business and, and try not to take it too personally and look at yeah but is this something everyone in our sector gets criticized for or is this specific to us so yes. you know, if you are any kind of consultancy or agency people are going to grumble on glassdoor that they had to work really hard and things were chaotic because yeah. that's just working that's in an the, agency or that's consultancy. the job 
it is inherently chaotic and changing and you know all the rest of it so don't take it too personally if you get kicked for that if you look at your competitors i bet they do as well you know and so you can start it is the differences that start to become relevant you're yes. right that kind of top top most mentioned things either positive or negative mm-hmm. is quite helpful because some somewhere in those top most mentioned things might lie something that's quite fundamental to your evp for example exactly is uh, that that's that's suddenly going to be quite useful so do use it it is useful and um, it has similar but different flaws to something we'll come on to i think which is staff survey data mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. which you know we we can get into but i think there's there's also other external data sources on how you are seen and that's this is where you can you can get into some off-the-shelf stuff and and, you know do i go and buy a survey from someone who surveyed a big population about how they see a bunch of employers Mm -hmm. and see how i rank within that sure um and there are probably some of you doing that there are probably some of you who are every year buying a data set yeah um I would ask you all to look hard on why you're buying it every year mm-hmm. and what difference would it make if we stopped buying it for a year and just bought it every other year because you might be able to recover yourself a substantial amount of budget by doing that. Are you doing something with the annual changes? So if something goes from 20% to 22%, do you actually do anything any differently? And sometimes you'd be able to say, yes, Marcus, actually we do. When that number changes by a small amount, we do this differently. Some of you go, no, we don't really, yeah. do we? Knowing it's roughly 20% is quite useful, yeah. but that's not going to change from year to year, is it? It's kind of like measuring your height every week. I yes. mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. really? It, exactly. It's probably a good thing to do every few years to check yeah. that you're not shrinking and your yeah. spine isn't curving. But yeah, I mean, you know, if I started measuring myself annually, it's kind of, it's not going to, it's not going to change yeah. very much. I you're mean, not 10, Marcus. Well, exactly. I can predict from this age on way, onwards which way it's going as well. I'm gradually going to compress. But it, it's you, you, you need to look at these things and go, do I have enough of what I need? Actually, sometimes some of you have got too much. Yeah. And the problem you have with data is you're collecting too much of it. And you'd be better off going, let's get a bit more selective about which ones I'm really going to look at. Yeah. Um, and, and giving yourself fewer headaches in terms of all of those. And if you're not actually ready to change something, do not measure a thing. It is a absolute yeah, yeah. waste of time because the pr- the purpose of measuring thing is to say, where should I change and how should I change? And if you're not willing to change, fi- fi- there's a million other places you could spend that money. Completely. The the other external data source, just before we get into internal data, that some of you may have looked at, and I just want to give you a big warning on it, big flashing red light, is someone at some point will say, shall we do some social listening? Um, and this sounds like a good idea because it works really well in the world of consumer. It could yes. have gone into our last episode about the differences. But if you do some social listening about how people feel about you as a business, it depends what kind of business you are, how good that data is going to be. If you are a con- commercial business that yeah. has customers, all the noise on the social listening will be people who are your customers. All of it. All of it. So you won't be able to find the job ones within it. So social listening, you could do it, but it'd be quite difficult to do well. It'd be quite expensive yeah. to find the data within it that was there, actually about who you are as an employer. Yeah, and there was, like, and this is a million years ago, there was a tool that did some pretty interesting yeah, Boolean yeah. searches, and you're like, brand, and then you're like, you know, plus jobs, plus career, plus your job, you know, all these other things. Yeah. You are... It, it, it's so much work and the data is not that helpful. It also depends on whether your employment has a brand. Now, the only mm-hmm. one I can think of where this is a case is, and it's, it's actually a dismissive thing, is there was a thing a while ago about the McJob. 
Yeah. In, in, you know, and people would refer to the McJob. So McDonald's could look at what are people saying about McJob. Mm -hmm. But we kind of know what that's going to be already. If anybody's using that phrase, they are being negative, probably. Yeah. So is there any point us doing the social listening exercise? Well, probably not. It might be interesting. Well, you, you always know it's one of these ones that does end up being a word cloud because no one knew what to do with what they found. Yeah. So. I just warn people off being missold social listening by someone who's trying to make money out of you. Totally. Check their methodology and go ask them the question, how are you going to disambiguate between what people thought about us as a business and what people think about us as an employer? And if they don't have a very, very good answer, tell them to go away. They might have a very good answer. This is the sort of thing that I absolutely believe someone could program an AI to do. Mm -hmm. Yep, that is definitely feasible. Except I haven't seen one yet. Chances are the, 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 the sample size is going to be so small. Yeah. Like how many yeah. employees do you have and how many of them are because look, there are plenty of people complaining about you online and never use yes. your name. If you look at Reddit's anti-work and all these threads, there are, trust me, your companies are in there. You just don't know it yeah. and you'll have no way of extracting it. What's the secret ingredient in a great career site? It isn't the photo or the headline. It's not the layout or the features. The secret to a great career site is that it is based on a strategy, one that takes advantage of a company's unique resources and presents it in a compelling package. Are you getting the strategy you need to build a great career site from your employer brand or recruitment marketing agency? If you'd like to learn more about how a strategy-focused approach leads to a better career site, check out the award-winning work from 33, with offices in New York, London, and Bristol. So I think that the major thing we have left to talk about is is the internal data set. Yep. And this is where, in theory, things get a lot better. But I think yep. there are also... Theory is the right word. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the staff survey. So often when I start working with a client and we're doing an employer brand project, they'll say, do you want all of our staff survey data? And, you know, the honest in my heart of hearts answer is no, I don't want all of that data. But the answer is pretty, yes, I will probably yeah, of course. have to look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... In theory, you've asked everyone who works for you some questions about what it is like to work for you. That should be pretty useful. The problem is how good were the questions you asked? Mm -hmm. How good are the answers they've decided to give you? And also, hugely, what is the machine you've used to collect that data and how is it now stored and how searchable is it? So I spent a lot of the early part of my career dumping people's data into Excel and creating pivot tables and mm -hmm. doing all the kind of manipulation because that was what I had to do. Yeah. These days, quite a lot of you have bought a better front-end portal that allows you to do some data interrogation yourself. And you're able to look at that data set and go, how do women feel about our business versus how do men feel about our business? How do people at this kind of level feel versus that level? How do people in this geography or this business division? Most of you are now buying a, a survey supplier that in theory can run some of those reports for you. Yeah. And some of them are pretty good. Mm -hmm. Some of them are and, and have the, uh, you know, the fuzzy logic to look at all the open-ended answers and group them together. Mm -hmm. Okay, that now starts to become useful. But, you know, hugely this is going to be about scale. If you're an employer with less than 100 people, you can look at your entire oh, survey yeah. data. Yeah, and keep yeah. it all in your head. And exactly, and you can read the survey, and it starts to make sense. If you're an employer with 10,000 employees, you're not going to do that. No one's going to do that. No. You, everyone is, I'm afraid, now a number, and you are now going to be analysing big chunks of data. And it gets quite hard. Quite a lot of clients have you know, paid for my time in the past to come in and tell them what their staff survey says, <laughs> even if they've commissioned someone else to do the survey, because it is quite difficult to kind of navigate your way around it. Yeah. And 
some of the data companies are going to do very weird things like they've asked everyone questions on a Likert scale of strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree and disagree. And then at some point they've suddenly decided to switch that into good and bad. And they've yeah. gone, right, those ones are the people who are happy and those were... Hang on a minute, Not justify quite. why you've decided that cutoff point. Yeah. They don't have a very good answer if you press yeah. them. There. But you've I... got to look at that. Yeah. yeah, and I love it when people refer to Likert scale as if it's, oh, and this makes it accurate. Like, no, mm -hmm. that's just a way of looking at data. It's a whole different ballgame. Yes. I'd also add, you know, and I think to your to your point about these tools that are collecting this data, I have now started to see some really interesting AI tools that not only do they just kind of go, let's just dump it all in a big pile and pick out the top five words, which, you know, you see in a glass door type thing. It is really about saying they look at each individual answer. They effectively yes. rewrite that answer into a more structured, more standardized framework, and then they start to apply some measurement and extraction techniques. And then they can even say, okay, once having extracted, go back to the original kind of quote and pull out interesting words. So I think these tools are going to start to develop these things to say it's not just about how do I query it, it's really about having almost like a secondary methodology of extracting useful information around this. Hey, can you, based on someone complaining or raving about a job, tell me what their motivations for working in a place are? Can you look at this data and say, this is a place, the thing that they cared most about was work from home, but if they couldn't get that, they probably cared most about salary. That is where things are going to get really interesting in like a hurry. And once you start to have that, you're actually both going to have better information, but also a more yes. complicated problem of how much do you trust that? And how do you unpack that to say, is this is this live or is this Memorex? I, I think the, the other exciting thing that starts to become more possible now with better data analysis is it is more possible than ever before to start segmenting your audience, not by where they are in your organization, but by what they want and going, right, there are a bunch <sighs> of people who work for us who want this whatever age they are and whatever gender they are. Yep. There are a bunch of people who work for us who want this. And you can start clustering groups of employees together and going, there is a category of person who works for us who look, who thinks and behaves this way. Yep. What can we do for them? There the, the used to be this thing. I, I used to talk to a lot of clients, particularly very senior HR clients, about the staff survey and go, what happens when you get a really good score in the staff data is you go, 75% of people are very happy with their training and development. And, and you all look very happy and you pat yourself on the back. I'm like, yep. yeah, okay, that's great. You know, a quarter of your organization aren't. That, that's bad, yeah, right? That's bad. Like, you need to flip that number and go, wow. Okay, and you need to you need to stop thinking about the 75%. They're fine. Okay, mm -hmm. good. We need to think about that 25% and what are we going to do about them? And actually, it's not just the majority view that you should be looking at staff surveys yes. with. You should be looking at that minority group in any number. You know, The outlier tells the story. Exactly. If 68% of this, what are the other 32%? What are they doing? I want to know about them. Because yeah. actually, it's the people who are not happy with something where there's an action required. The people who are happy, there's no action required. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and so often we spend a lot of our energy focusing on the big number. And actually, we should be doing flipping it over and thinking, you know, the 100% minus number. Who are they? What mm -hmm. are we doing about them? And we might be okay with, okay, some people, you can't please all the people all the time. Certainly. But are we okay that 32% of our organization are not happy with whatever that thing was that got a 68% yay score? Yeah. And, and sometimes you ask, you flip it over and you ask it that way and you go, oh, no, we're not okay with nearly a third of our organization being unhappy about that. 
we'd better go and do something then. And that suddenly becomes a to-do list yeah. that somebody might be, might be involved in because sometimes it's not actually a problem, it's a perception problem. We come back to this one a few times during the podcast, but internal mobility is a really good example. Yeah. You know, you, at some point in your survey, you're going to ask people, do you feel there are opportunities for advancement? And they're going to say yes or no to, on one of these scales. Actually, sometimes just making people aware that there are opportunities improves that number. It's yeah. not actually about improving the number of opportunities. It's about the awareness of those opportunities is what's going to move that score. And you in employer branding and internal comms and recruitment marketing, you might play a significant role in fixing that. Problem. Totally. Um, because it's a perception problem, not a reality problem for some of you. Now, a lot of times, I was someone was showing me a dashboard, and I was like, "This is nice," but I feel. Like, but you have to kind of think of the intention. What was this dashboard? What was this tool designed to tell me? And a lot of dashboards are designed to feel like the the check engine light on your car's dashboard. It is yeah. everything is fine up until the moment this thing happens, and then all you know is something is wrong, and that is. Yes of value, certainly, to an executive who's got four trillion things to worry about, knowing that they don't have to worry about internal mobility, have to worry about employee engagement, have to worry about certain things is of value. And then knowing, oh, I have to worry about that, that's useful. However, it doesn't say what's wrong. It doesn't suggest a to-do list. It doesn't suggest no. we're defining a problem. And I think more dashboards are focused on telling you everything is fine or telling you things are bad to sell you something rather than saying, hey, look, you have 4,000 things that could be wrong. 3,998 of them are fantastic, but these two are going to kill you. These are the two that you should be spending your time on. Think about it. So one thing I've done, the interesting thing is all, all the things in a staff survey are not of the same type. True. And, and that often becomes very problematic. Sometimes when I've been showing top line survey data back to the leadership of a business, one of the things I've done is I've shown them, right, I'm about to show you the scores for these 10 things that are the top level scores out of your thing. Mm -hmm. I want you in the room to tell me what do you think would be an acceptable score at which you guys would go, oh, yeah, it's fine, mean. we don't need to do anything. You are so mean. But it, it's important to get them to think about that before you show them answers, because there are some things where an acceptable answer might be 60%. Yeah, if 60% of our organization are happy with that, that's fine. Yeah. Whereas there are other things where actually anything less than 100% is not okay. Yeah. So, you know, do you feel like you've been discriminated against within this business? <laughs> the acceptable score is zero. Right? Anything more than zero is a problem. Yeah. Right? Whereas, do you understand the business strategy? Okay, it'd be lovely if everyone did, but actually an acceptable score might be lower than that because some people are new and some people yeah. are very junior and something. Right, actually there's probably an acceptable score that's lower than that. Certainly. And I think the other thing people forget is there's some people you employ to be dissatisfied within your organization. So your head of innovation should not be happy with the direction of your business. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like right? that a lot. <laughs> and actually, there, there will be divisions with it. So every time, you know, if we do a survey at 33 and we ask people, do you think everything's fine how it is? The answer should be no, because we've hired a bunch of people who like changing things and improving things and doing things differently. Yes. If everybody was happy, we've got a problem. That is so because true. Because we ought to have people who are determined that they know how the business should be run. And, you know, I, it, it, I think it annoys our leadership team. But, you know actually below them there is a whole population of people who think they could run the business better good that's exactly the kind of people who it's create a friction you should be you're expecting you can't create 
create things if everybody's exactly. complacent. And that's tr- I mean, look, exactly. look, if, if we're all living, look, if this was 50 years ago, we were all working in factories and there was a set, you know, yes. spec and we we're all meeting it. You'd want everybody to be happy enough. We are now yes. dealing a world where most of our best employees are creative. And that means 98% of the time they're going to be frustrated because they've, pus- yes. they've put a challenge or a, a question in front of them or had something put in front of them where they're going, no one's ever solved this before. This is really complicated. Yeah. This is really hard. And like trying to, you know, invent a compound or doing a thing. It takes a lot of failure to come up with the right way of doing it. And those moments of failure rarely feels like, oh, I'm getting there. It always feels like I'm never going to get there. And then one day, click, it works. And you're like, I can't believe it works. And that feels good. But yeah, that's got to influence those scores. Completely. And, and you know, if you, if you said to me, you know, oh, 60% of our business are unhappy with the way that our business is being run. I'm going to go, great. Remind me what your business is. Yeah. If you're, if you're kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, a healthcare business, that's a problem mm-hmm. because that means it's probably the clinical staff are very yeah. unhappy with the management. Yeah. If your if nurses you're are unhappy, you're done. You're in trouble. Yeah. Whereas if you're a management consultancy, fine. Actually, yeah. you want that number higher. They all think they should be running businesses. So like, actually they should. Why hire them? Got a better way of running it. Well, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you've got to look at these scores rationally and it's always back to this thing so we, with an awful lot of data sets i i talk to, to junior people when they come into the industry i talk to them about the who who when why and what and you go right who did you ask and, and when did you ask them and therefore how relevant and valid is this so with an internal data set it's an entirely relevant data set with an external data set you start going okay the people i'm interested in are a small subset yeah. of this and when is you know how recent is this data and that's going to give you a sense of how valid and relevant is this data set the why thing is why were they asked this question and what was the incentive of the person doing so mm-hmm. and it has that corrupted my data but the what thing is the really important thing is so what what does this number actually mean yeah always try and convert if someone gives you a percentage try and convert it into a real number so you know 32 percent of our staff think this convert it into the real number that means 6200 people said that yep or you know whatever it is in your case convert it to the actual real number and exactly what it is that they said because that's much harder to ignore than a percentage especially when you're talking to your senior stakeholders and and then ask yourself this question does that change anything if that number had been twice as big what would i do differently if that Mm -hmm. number was half as big what would i do differently and if the answer is yeah not really anything it's not a very valuable piece of data <laughs> yeah but if it's all oh my word if that was twice as big i'd do i would completely rip up my plan and do something different okay that's an important number we need yep. to pay a lot of attention to it and, and I, it's not a bad rule no and i've seen so many kind of executive teams look at and be handed data or given the data they asked for and all they're doing is doing this kind of dissection to unmake the survey yeah. hey yeah. it turns out that 40 percent of our people aren't satisfied with their leadership do you think they mean they're direct manager do you think they mean their department team do you think they mean the uh, the c-suite do they mean the, what do they mean well we can't possibly know what that means so the fact that 40 percent of the pa- people are dissatisfied with their leadership we don't know anything what we can do and so we can ignore that it's a way of obfuscating to avoid responsibility and avoid making changes and that yeah. to me is the biggest red flag in looking at data if you look at the data and you want to react i get that that should be an instinct if you look at the data and you go let me see if i can find a way to make this go away yeah. you got bigger problems. But some of the obfuscation has happened in advance. Oh, my, my favorite bad question in a survey that I, I grumble every time I see it is, there's this question that gets asked a lot in surveys and employer brand people quite often get quite excited about the answer. And it's, would you recommend us as an employer? Oh, yeah. Right? The standard, now, the yeah, problem, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, NPS scores. Yes, I have lots of challenges However, with NPS. 
The problem I have with that question is, why have we gone into the subjunctive mood? Why, why are we asking, would you recommend us? The question should be, Did you? have you recommended yeah. us? Exactly, right? Why, are we, why have we gone hypothetical here? Because that allows someone to say, oh, well, I would, but actually I didn't. Or yeah. you know, Actually, asking someone, have you recommended someone us as an employer, will give you a lot better sense of how people really feel about you and whether they're really endorsing you and whether they are being an employee advocate. Because someone who is theoretically an employee advocate is absolutely no use to you. You yep. need someone who's actually an employee advocate. And so it's a much better question to ask, have you recommended us as an employer to anyone? Yeah. So I imagine the, the gap. The number will go right down. Yeah, but it's a much more accurate number. But the gap is interesting because it will also tell you a little bit of look. You don't have a lot of room. No one's going to refer you. Look, this is yeah. this number is not going to get better. Or look, you yeah. just have a bad referral structure. You haven't put it in place. You haven't communicated. I will not get into the conversation of is it a good re reward system because I think that's not germane. But if eighty percent of the people say they would recommend it and five percent have. I want to go in and talk to the referral team and say, what are we not doing? But it's, it's much harder to argue with the data when you've asked hard questions. Correct. So, you know, if instead of saying, you know, do you think we are an equitable and fair employer? It's have you seen someone in the last three years be treated unfairly? Oh, right. And actually, yes. Yeah. But, but then then you've got a hard number that no one can argue with rather than a, a, a kind of vague mood about what I think might be the case in my opinion on this day. I think the other thing to remember about staff survey data is whenever you did it, if you sent out exactly that same survey two hours later, you get a different answer. Yep. My, my feeling about my employer and everyone else's feeling about their employer is not a static thing. No. You can do a survey and what you've got is a Polaroid photo of how people felt at that moment that they mm -hmm. opened that survey, not how they normally feel. Yeah. And, and it's it going to go up and down. I feel happier at the, at the end of the day than I do at the start of the day. I probably feel happier at the end of the week than I do at the start of the week. How I feel depends on how the meeting I just had went. Yes. You know, that... That actual feeling about you is going to fluctuate hugely for reasons that are not your fault. And, and you, know, you have to accept that it is absurd to say that any piece of staff survey emotion data is 22.8%. No, it isn't. It was 22.8% at that moment when those people are then. Mm -hmm. It has already changed. Yeah. So I get very annoyed when I see people doing trend lines on their oh, yeah. you know, 2023 survey versus their 2022 survey. And I go, you do realize it's gone up and down more between that yeah. than that change. And there, there's value in a pulse survey to give you an indication and see some trends. Yeah, but yeah. You're right. It is, it is, it's very flexible. My personal favorite question, which I always proffer and has yet to be accepted, and you'll understand once I tell you what the question is, the question is not, would you recommend this to a friend or you know, do you like working here? The question is, if you knew then what you know now about working here, would you still want to work here? Oh, we're done. Ooh. We're done. That is, a, that is a great question. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's kind of the flip of the question I quite often ask when I'm trying to generate EVP stuff is I ask people, what should we have told you that we didn't? Yes. Yes. Which is kind of the flip of that. I ask that by um, saying, what was surprised you when you came in? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. what did you, you know, what were expectations? How are they set versus the reality of showing up? But your original point about expectations is, is a good one, whether it's Glassdoor or whether it's the staff survey is, you know, 
some of you have set yourselves up by hiring incredibly demanding people yeah. by saying like everybody who comes here is going to make an impact right well now you've said that everyone's going to expect to make an impact you know if you said we're an incredibly innovative business how innovative is everybody's job mm -hmm. you you've got some people who are doing innovative stuff but you know you are setting some of these expectations which you are then scored upon yeah you know and that includes and, the hr team who's gonna who's, yeah. whose sense of what innovation is is going to be a little different than your development coding team Completely, completely. That word means different things to different people. But, you know, you you do set some of the expectations with people. But also, don't forget, this survey is setting expectations as yes. well. If you ask me the question, have you had a meeting with your manager about your development? Right, you've just set an expectation that that's a thing that should happen. Yep. Right, so, which didn't necessarily exist in my head until you asked me that question. And so you need to look at the survey that you have bought off the shelf quite possibly and go, we are about to tell a bunch of people this is what they should be getting from us. Mm -hmm. did, did we mean that? Or, or actually, do we need to edit or take out some of those questions? Because frankly, those aren't things that we think we should be doing. Yeah. But as soon as you ask people, are you getting this? I'm going to think I should be getting that. Yeah. Or at least that you intended for me to get that thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like if your spouse comes out and says, do I look okay? And you say, did you change your hair? Suddenly they're going, what's wrong with my hair? What's happening with my hair? <laughs> the question itself changes the perception of what expectations are. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the reality is your life would be a lot easier if people's expectations I were know. a bit lower. Yeah. And they would be more content with what they're getting. Except we'd be able to have a harder time attracting people because you could, you know, there's not much of a message to say, hey, we're kind of like everybody else. Come on in. It's fine. <laughs> Although, actually, that would be incredibly distinctive. You know, <laughs> one company did that. They could they could have a rate. Yeah. It's like the it's like the value brand at the supermarket. Yeah. Right. There's a market for it. Right. <laughs> but very few people want to be there. But, yeah, I mean, you, you've got to think through that, you know, this this survey data is quite useful to you as an input back to you know the topic of the day is it is useful but even that you can't overread it, you should have a higher completion rate on it it'll be a lot easier to cut you can at least ask the questions about how it was done and you can probably get a good answer about all of that but again if you get lost in it go and find someone else who understands that data set better there should be someone within your organization whose job is predicated on that data set there's probably someone yeah. in marketing who could help you look at it your agency should be able to help you look at it if you've got an agency or a consultant if you're working with a consultant ask for their advice because they've probably looked at loads of these before they've given them a lot of times well exactly exactly you know i've written them i've analyzed other people's i've used them as inputs i can probably quickly go oh yeah this old chestnut fine you know the people who work for you for five to ten years are disenchanted. Yes, that is true at every company. It's it's a survivor error. The people who were really angry quit really quickly. Yep. And the people who've been there for twenty years love you because otherwise they would have gone in the meantime. The five to ten years is the people who've got slightly annoyed but haven't quit yet. Yes. It, it's where you find the disenchantment. Yeah. <laughs> Any other data we should be looking at before we wrap this up? I think that's probably it for input data. I mean, there's a million other things we could do. Oh but yeah. I think that's that's probably like the main ones you're going to encounter for input data at least how i'm looking at it i think then next next time we will get onto okay the output data yeah the how are we measuring things how are we measuring roi it's the one that everybody is still talking about and no one's got a perfect answer but no. hopefully we can give you some steer on on where to look and where not to look exactly exactly
All right. Uh, this has been a fantastic question, Marcus, or fantastic conversation, Marcus. I appreciate uh, – you did a bit bulk of the talking because this is where you live. So I, <laughs> I love uh, – I'm, I'm, thr- I'm glad I got you to laugh once or twice here. So that's that's the win Absolutely. to me. So otherwise, I think to everybody else listening, that I, I, I presume they learned a lot because I know I certainly did. Fantastic. Well, I, I hope so. And, yeah, you know, if you if you have – other burning questions that we didn't cover to do with input data, leave us a message on the voicemail on the website because we almost certainly did miss something that you're looking at. We'd love any thoughts about anything else you'd like us to cover, but um, hopefully that's been the big ones for most people. I think it's a great start. All right, I'll see you next week. See you next week, James. Thanks for listening to The Brand Plan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd spread the word. 